Velociraptor from Jurassic World is a dog. Oh, that movie sucks. Shut up. Yeah, sh- <laughs> shut your mouth. Totally Dogs are closer to birds than they are to He's dogs. closer to parrots. Uh, and welcome to the Down and Friend Podcast, the official podcast of downandfriendpodcast.com. My name is Warren. I am with a bunch of my best friends, and tonight we are reviewing Wes Anderson's newest film, Isle of Dogs. Is in, it's kind of sort of in limited release, but not really, but not a, a lot of theaters. It's kind of a bummer. But, but before we get into that, but before we talk about all of our other Wes Anderson love and everything that we loved or maybe didn't love about the movie, I'm going to toss it over and do a bit of a roundtable with a, a few of my best friends. I'm going to toss it way over to California, where the mouth of the South has uh, uprooted himself and moved over, and say, Brylin, how you doing? What you been watching? And what you sipping on? And I really hope you're still sipping on the Apothic Brew. I am, actually. Yes. Got my nice glass of Apothic Brew right here. It is flavorful. It is tasty. The only other thing in the fridge was a 40 of Miller High Life, so I think I made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Um, what I've been watching is I watched WrestleMania in its entirety this past Sunday. Uh, this was actually uh, a really good WrestleMania. I thought it was very consistent in its quality of matches. Uh, my favorite being Charlotte versus Asuka. What those two ladies pulled off was nothing short of crazy and phenomenal and awesome. Um, but you know what? It is very long, and at the end, like the very last match, Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, nobody gives a shit anymore. Uh, and uh, it's just like, why are you torturing us at the end with this last match that nobody wants to even watch or care about? Uh, WWE needs to actually pay attention to who people are loving, and the person that is the most popular wrestler right now that they need to push is Braun Strowman. That guy is amazing. All right. I didn't watch WrestleMania, but I heard it was actually way more enjoyable than a lot of people had a chance to uh, check it out, so that's actually exciting to hear. So, it's always great to hear your voice and great to see you. Thank you. I'm going to toss it over to my new best friend. Uh, sorry, Mocha. Andrew Abbott, the host of the field free, ooh, Fear Boners. <laughs> that wine's hitting me. Uh, <laughs> Abbott, uh, what you been sipping on? What you been watching? Uh, right now, I am having regrets because I have tequila and grape soda in a chalice, and it's the weirdest thing. Um, I thought it was going to work out, but right now my mouth has this weird taste, which is different from the normal weird mouth taste that I have when nothing's in my mouth. Um but yeah, I've been uh, drinking that, regretting it, and uh, watching, uh, catching up on some TV uh, over the last few days. I caught up on um, Atlanta, which is amazing, um, and uh, Ash vs. Evil Dead, which is one of my favorites, is still wacky, zany, over-the-top, gore, horror, Bruce Campbell can do no wrong. Um, and then most recently, I watched the first season, or the first episode of the new season of Legion, 
um, which is absolutely bonkers. The first season was pretty nuts, but the imagery is really great, so I'm hoping they take it into some new and interesting places. So I'm reserving judgment for the rest of the season. And where's Ash at First Evil Dead? Uh, that's on Stars. Stars. Right. I know it's always yeah. kind of tough for me to kind of watch that, but I also been catch up on Atlanta. So great to hear your voice. Uh, great to see your face, and thank you for what you do for all the amazing fear bonus you give everybody. I love to share my boners. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, the most beautiful, majestic Mocha Mike, who is coming to us live all the way from Denmark. I don't even know where that is. How are you doing? How was your trip? What are you sipping on and what have you been watching? I'm doing fantastic. Great to be here, guys. Um, for those of you who don't have a map in front of you, Denmark is actually just north of Detroit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's Europe's blog. <laughs> Tropical Detroit. Um, actually, I'm in Scandinavia, uh, specifically in Aarhus. Or- or- I'm working on my pronunciations. It's hard out here. Um, yeah, hanging out in Denmark, visiting a friend, and podcasting with my native buddies back home way too early in the morning. I'm about six hours in the future from you guys, so uh, this is what I do for the pod. Put it all on the line. <laughs> How many Danishes have you had? Um, as in, like, people? <laughs> yeah, we're, talking, we're talking about pastries or people here? <laughs> I didn't say Danes, I said Danishes. <laughs> See, I'm still working on the nomenclature. Oh, man. <laughs> Um, none actually. I haven't seen any, and I think that might be offensive out here. I don't know. Probably. <clears throat> well, it's like tumblebuds; they just roll around out there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, but I'm doing great. I'm having a good time. I'm really glad to be back since it's been a while since I've been on an episode. Um, right now, as far as what I'm drinking, my Danish host was nice enough to provide me with this beer, which I'm going to do my best to pronounce. It is a Tubo Ulysbueg. Yeah. Um, so everybody who's uh, not watching the podcast, he's showing us the label of what that Jibor is. is yeah, T-B-O-R-G J-U-L-E-B-R-Y-G Tubo Yulisboig Cyborg <laughs> Jellyberg <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but I'm sipping on that. It's a nice tasty cold beer. And as for what I've been watching lately, um, during the transatlantic flight, I had a chance to start catching up on all of the um Oscar-nominated movies that I won't go out of my way to watch from the comfort of my own home. So I've watched a couple on the way in, um, but the one that stuck out most to me was The Florida Project. Um, it was a really solid movie. I am, I am surprised about its about how it managed itself during the Oscars because it was only nominated for Best Supporting Actor, um, which went to which was for Willem Dafoe, which he did not win. I don't think that his performance was worthy of an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. But I definitely think that movie was worthy of nominations in a lot of other categories, and it got completely snubbed otherwise, mm-hmm. especially the main actress, six-year-old Brooklyn Prince. She was absolutely amazing and did such a stellar job and did such a better, more authentic job at acting out her character than I've seen most adult actors do in their entire lives. So it's a real shame that she didn't get nominated for, for Best Actor um, because she was really fantastic in it. That's a bummer. So I mean, on Brooklyn Prince to another... I just, I just realized that. Have we ever seen a child actor or actress um, nominated for an Oscar? Absolutely. Anybody that's Anna under. Paquin. She won. But how old was she? She was twelve. Okay, so anybody like under ten? I was gonna say, yeah. By the way, uh, Tatum O'Neill was eleven. 
for Paper Moon. Ellie Joel Osment wasn't he? Wasn't he nominated? He's nominated. He didn't. Yeah. He was nominated for most likely to grow up to be dumpy looking, oh, <laughs> and he won. That's that's depressing. That dude does. He turned into. Life. He works on your car nowadays. Oh yeah, he's he, he's he's he is great though. Yeah, he was in that that Hulu show Future Man, and he was fantastic in it. So, uh, God bless him. Nice. <laughs> he played he played a weird Canadian Nazi in that Kevin Smith movie. That was that was an interesting turn of events. <laughs> Well, if you do have Amazon Prime, The Florida Project is actually on there. Um, and I've added that to my watch list, so I was pretty excited to kind of check that out because that was something I was really, really looking forward to watching. Uh, so thank you for uh, coming on, Mocha. It's definitely great to ha- have you on, especially you're so far away, so we thoroughly appreciate it. Uh, I am Warren. Oh, of course. Uh, I am Warren. I'm going to be your host. Right now, I am sipping on a red bottle of wine called Line 39 Pinot Noir from california it's actually very good very smooth uh very easy to drink uh so i may crush this bottle tonight who knows and uh from what i've been watching i also finally caught up and binged everything of atlanta um yesterday so i'm excited and i finished the last episode today for the teddy ruxin uh episode teddy perkins perkins thing. i was like teddy ruxin where's teddy ruxin come from like, oh, that's the that's the teddy bear that's equally as creepy ah okay right <laughs> Um, but the uh, other stuff that I watched, and I actually found out, had a chance to f- um, take a look at a documentary called Down from the Mountain. Have you guys heard about this? I have not. It's, I think you were telling me about it. Uh-huh. It's from the uh, the guy, the a bunch of the compilation artists who made the music for Or Brother Where Art Thou? And it oh. just talks about like them, like sometimes the creation of their music, how they were performing some of this music, and they were performing the movie, and... Man, this movie, this music is so good. The the documentary is just them just playing music, and it focuses more on just them like learning about these people's lives and the guy who was in the movie, Old Brother Where Art Thou, who like sold his soul for the devil, sort of thing. Uh, he was Johnson. huh, Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson. Okay, I didn't know who he was, uh, but he actually was like there, just kind of hanging out, uh, like playing music t- uh, too. So that was actually really really awesome. So I was super super pumped to uh, take a look into that. So. It took me forever to try to find it online. I think it's only on like hard DVD. Um, so, got my hands on a copy, and it was pretty cool. So, <laughs> I didn't have a DVD player, but I borrowed some stuff. So I just looked at it real hard until yeah. I saw the brain images in my head, <laughs> and then I got it. <laughs> uh, so, definitely go check that, check that out, especially if you like kind of good music, uh, good soulful kind of bluegrass music. I think if you haven't seen the movie, definitely go check out the movie because that's also fun. Um, so, that's what I'm watching. So I'm excited, guys. I'm, I'm pumped. What we're going to do for right now, we're going to move into our entire uh, movie review section. Uh, for, for everybody who haven't seen uh, Isle of Dogs by Wes Anderson, I would say you probably want to stop uh, the recording, uh, stop listening right now, because we will be spoiling the movie. Although it's not too many spoilers, we still want to kind of give you that option. So we're going to take a quick intermission, and we'll see you in a moment. <laughs> back and 
thank you so much and welcome back to the Down in Front podcast, official podcast of downinfrontpodcast.com. Uh, I am with Brylin, I'm with Mocha Mike, Andrew Abbott, and myself is Warren. What we're going to be doing is giving you a full review, including spoilers, of Isle of Dogs by Wes Anderson. And what we're going to be doing is breaking it up into a couple different sections. We're going to actually do a bit of a ranking, so all the other Wes Anderson films, we're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to get into just talking about the cast and then the acting and then probably kind of go into the use of like the translation and the depiction depiction of like the Japanese culture and then later on we can talk about some other stuff before we kind of sign off so I'm super pumped I'm really excited and I'm actually going to start off with um kind of toss it over to the group and let's start with just going from hard rankings now I haven't seen all the Wes Anderson films so I can just say sorry um but I'm still a fan of them I'm going to toss it over to Brylin says Brylin just give me the rankings really quickly and then we're all going to chat about them so give me your rankings for Wes Anderson holla all right I've seen all his films I love his aesthetic so I start with Moonrise Kingdom then Rushmore Fantastic Mr. Fox Royal Tenenbaums, Grand Budapest Hotel, Bottle Rocket, Life Aquatic, Darjeeling Limited, and Isle of Dogs Lats. You mean Grand Budapest? Budapest. Budapest. Uh, Mocha Mike, your rankings. So, I too have seen all of Wes Anderson's uh, fully directed filmography. Um, I had the good benefit of living with our mutual good friend, Ian Scott Howland. Um, three years ago, when and he took me on a guided tour of his entire <laughs> filmography, um, so it's all pretty fresh in my mind. For me, my list, similar to Bryland, starts with Moonrise Kingdom. That's my top one. Gotta love it. Followed by Royal Tenenbaums. Also, Fantastic Mr. Fox in third place. Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Grand Budapest Hotel, Life Aquatic, and Dar- uh, Darjeeling Unlimited. No, no, excuse me. Life Aquatic, then Isle of Dogs. Then Darjeeling Limited. Okay. Abbott? Uh, yeah. I Life Aquatic is my number one. Then Grand Budapest Hotel, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Isle of Dogs, Darjeeling Limited, Moonrise Kingdom, Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and Bottle Rocket. Uh, and because I haven't seen everything, uh, my favorites are going to be the three movies I have seen. Uh, I'm pretty sure I saw Rushmore, but I don't remember. I saw Life Aquatic. I just don't remember enough to rank it. Um, so my three will be uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Isle of Dogs, and Greta Poo- Be- Grand Budapest Hotel. So yeah, I'm excited to uh, to kind of unpack these lists, and I'm really interested because I know Bradley, you put uh, I Love Dogs at the at last. And I think you had a tweet that uh, pissed me off a little bit, uh, but I'm excited to talk about like what do you th- why do you think I Love Dogs is last on his list, and what do you think that was kind of lacking from uh, this film and not the others? Uh, well, I feel that it definitely shares the same wonderful Wes Anderson aesthetic that rest of his movies does those on center shots where zoom in on faces really well the panoramic of like kind of uh having um like cutouts of houses and things like that where you see all the action in one frame uh he definitely has his style and it's definitely visually engaging and catching the big thing that this movie is missing is a lot of the earnestness and the heart that the rest of his movies bring I felt that this journey was a very superficial one, that it was Wes Anderson only for the visuals and just for the visuals' sake. So I really felt that it was hard to actually 
care about the journey of some of the characters. And, um, and I just came out saying, Hey, okay. It was a pretty Wes Anderson film. And that was it. There was not much more to it. Like things you would take away if, um, like Moonrise Kingdom when it comes to adolescent relationships and um, seriousness of a crush and managing that in a, like a serious way compared to just like casting it aside, making it like the exact theme or uh, and Royal Tannenbaum's idea of whole family coming together. Uh, this is missing that. And that's a big part of Wes Anderson's storytelling. Yeah. Mocha? Yeah, this film, you know, similar to Brylin, more likely similar to what everyone's going to say, it was absolutely stunning from a visual standpoint. Um, the amount of detail that went into some of the movements of these stop-motion characters, um, for me, one of the most, like, one of the scenes that took my breath away was an early scene where um, I believe it was Atari's original dog after he's dropped in the crate on Trash Island. He's sitting there, and it's just quiet, and he's just sitting there, and it's a moment where the audience has to just kind of in, like in, take in the despair that's around him. And all you see are like individual clumps of fur on his body um, moving with the wind as it blows. And it, there was so much care and effort put into every little detail from an artistic standpoint in this film. But similarly to Brylin, I felt like this movie laid entirely on how beautiful it was and didn't put enough into the actual meat of the story. Um, you know, there were definitely emotional cues involved, but it just felt it felt kind of hollow compared to some of his other films. Um, it's hard to put a you know an exact pin on it because the dogs were all endearing and cute. They all had personalities, but similar to what Brian said, there's something about the journey that just wasn't as meaningful. Um, in the grand scheme of, of the whole film. Nice. And when you look at every other movie that Wes Anderson has put out as well. That's together. It's, it's, a, it's a complete work. Uh, add it. Yeah, um, a big thing for me was uh, definitely the animation. Um, as I come from a background in that, I've been to the Ottawa International Animation Festival three times, and this looks like a lot of what you see when you go to a festival like that. But it's also like a huge, big, overblown Hollywood production at the same time so i think it was really well crafted while at the same time i see some of the points you guys are making but i do feel like for me at least five minutes in i was like this is very wes anderson-y um the settings the shots the way that he plays with the angles the way that some of the characters talked um but i feel like the the disconnect um at least for me was the fact that this one is sort of rather than some of his movies that are set in specific periods this was a not far flung, but it was like a dystopian future, which is kind of out of his wheelhouse a little bit. It's something new. It's something different. Um, but I also do think that he does really well playing with a lot of different metaphors in this movie, um, especially the fact that he sort of presented a movie that could have potentially been catered to children. And at least in our experience, Warren and I in the theater, we were in like a mixed audience. And the deeper we got into the movie, we're like, oh, this isn't for kids. <laughs> and, you know, maybe some of the parents pulled their kids out or maybe some kids learned some things that day. But, uh, no, I really enjoyed it. And I think um, I, I'll agree to disagree. Uh, I agree with some of your points, but I do think this is definitely one of his um, better works. Yeah, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to jump off something really quick from what Abbott said, talking about the audience in the theater. Um, I had an absolutely horrific audience to watch this film with. It was packed, and 
it seemed that every single person in that film was incapable of containing themselves when they saw a cute animal because literally it was nothing but a chorus of people around me going oh mm, really ah, from the start to the end and i just need anybody listening to this podcast out there to understand that if you cannot if you know that you cannot look at a cute dog and not make some weird fucking noise don't go to a movie that's just about cute dogs like it was absurd it was don't forget your theater muzzle (laughs) (laughs) yeah seriously stay at home scratch your fleas and watch it by yourself and make all the noises you want that's terrible where'd you watch the movie at like what theater do you remember so i watched this at the regal cinema in union square in manhattan um, which is right there, right at Union Square. So it's really easy to get to for a whole bunch of shitty people who might not go to the movies otherwise. It's also right by NYU and a bunch and new schools. So there were a lot of younger like people in the audience, which I have nothing against. Like if you're 18, 19, college student, whatever, go to the movies, but don't sit there and literally whine throughout the entire thing. <laughs> it was it was bad. Well, you know what Bob Barker would say about that? He would say, uh, "Please remember to spay and neuter your movie theater audience." <laughs> yeah. Did you hear the rumor about Bob Barker? <laughs> oh yeah, the conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, so me and Abbott kind of watched this film together, and um, you know, it's one of the things I just enjoyed the majority of the, the time. Like we watched it, and it was a pretty packed theater, so much that I went and saw it again. Um, and both showings for Saturday uh, night around 7 o'clock were both sold out. Um, so I was very surprised. And this was a Regal Fenway um, in Boston. Uh, that was both sold out. So we ended up going over the Coolidge Corner um, location that was like pretty empty. And it was like pretty cool to kind of watch it in like an older theater. Um, but I felt like a lot of the audience was like very engaged on both sort of sittings that I actually had of it. And it was very just enjoyable to kind of watch this movie and see the the best that I can at least kind of compare it to is Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's why I put it after it, but I also enjoyed it a, a lot with this. I've seen a lot of comparisons and, um... I like, you know, following the characters, especially because we're introduced to them pretty early. And he also introduces a, a bit of violence and a bit of, hey, this is a Wes Anderson movie. And it's this is we're going to show you that I'm going to rip a dog's ear off. And that's a, a, a like a very gory, like a graphic moment. And then you see him just kick the dog ear, which is a very funny <laughs> moment. That you see the rat just like <laughs> walking away with the ear. So it really kind of transitioned into like oh my gosh, oh, okay, so this movie really does talk about, like, a bit of the violence and a little bit of, uh, like, a gore and, like, the, that element, but it also kind of tries to play plays it down a little bit and kind of plays it light, um, even for the characters who die in the movie and even for the character who's a spy, which by far I think he is one of my favorite characters in the movie, who doesn't, <laughs> who doesn't say a word, right? He just has a look, a little pencil mustache. Oh, the, the, the master hacker? Yeah, <laughs> little pencil mustache. I was like, every time he's on screen, it was amazing. Um, yeah, so I just and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm, and I'm excited to kind of get into talk about, uh, you know, the reason why I enjoyed it. And it's a little bit different than, like, acting, right? But there's a lot of the voice actings. And I know Wes Anderson typically has his standard... Um, people and contributors to going and like being voices or being actors on in his movies and so abbott you know you had talked about a couple of the uh, uh things of you know some actors who were in this movie of what are some things that you just enjoyed when we talk about acting and we talk about cast and the performances some stuff that you enjoyed about that 
Um, yeah, definitely uh, Brian Cranston as a lead. Um, him being like the main dog, kind of becoming like the big dog throughout the film was great because he's. I don't believe he's been. He hasn't been in any other Wes Anderson movies, and for him to have such a major role and um, have such a character turn uh, was really great. Um, but even the smaller roles in that film, like Edward Norton as his sort of foil, that was pretty great. Um, but one that sticks out uh, in particular is Harvey Keitel, uh, his dog um, being like kind of the one that uh, rescues um, the other dogs on the island. And he's so remorseful and so sad that he howls all the time. So it's, it's literally Harvey Keitel howling is the funniest freaking thing. Um <laughs> But then also, uh, Tilda Swinton is Oracle, um, as we talked about before. Her her performance is hilarious because so she just has that like flat, serious voice. <laughs> so she could be an Oracle. I mean, you know, she was the she was the ancient one, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, just little things like that, little touches like that, where um, uh, people just really pulled off these performances. The choice to not have subtitles, but instead have sort of Francis McDormand as this announcer that kind of explains everything as it goes along and has these emotional responses to people just talking is really great too. Um, yeah, no, I think as, as Wes Anderson movies go, this was one of the, uh, better ensemble casts, even though they're not like full on acting. I think, um, some of the voice choices, especially for an animated movie were really key. Yeah. I really liked that. It was like a personalization that each one of them made for their characters and, I like that it was also a very quick uh, establishment of, you know, these are the things that's going to happen through the movies of the snout flu, right? And then the, what, what was the, yeah, yeah, and you had talked about, like, the uh, the dog sneezing, like, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, like, sort of, sort of tick. Um, yeah. And the, 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 the clicks that was in that one. And then even for in this one, I thought it was kind of funny of uh, something that ties dogs together sometimes is like whistling. And there's like a particular pattern of music that's happening. I, I thought that was uh, just just fun. I just kind of enjoyed it. But, Brylin, what about you? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to acting, I think uh, Jeff Goldblum stole the show with his, uh, his uh, rumor monger going around. <laughs> just. Every like five steps that he took, he's like, "Did you hear the rumor about this? Do you hear the rumor about that?" It's like I want to watch Jeff Goldblum on YouTube just <laughs> ask questions constantly like that because <laughs> I think it's just perfect fodder for who he is as a person. Um, I too like Frances McDormand. I thought they did a really cool thing uh, with the translator, having her be this uh, kind of uh, present narrator for. When uh, we need to know what uh, the Japanese uh, characters are saying. Uh, and I thought it was cute that when Atari got up there and said something, they brought a little girl to be his translator, too. I thought that was very cute. Uh, and um, yeah, and I would second like Brian Cranston. He's got a great voice and he can actually convey a lot of emotion and sincerity through his uh, role. And I thought his character's journey, I mean, he's kind of the main character of this uh, of this movie, even though you do have Atari as the human that we were supposed to kind of connect with. Um, but his uh, his dog was, uh, Brian Crescent's dog uh, was definitely like the star of the show and definitely stole the movie. Yeah, I... I really enjoyed the fact that, you know, the, the movie starts off and it talks about the kid... Um, I can't remember the name of the uh, the legend they talked about, but he basically beheads, like, cuts off the head of the guy, and he he's like, oh, you know why they talk about this like a haiku, 
and Atari at the end just says this haiku, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, it was just, it's, it's so ridiculous, but it was kind of so fun, but uh, it, it was at least nice to see a lot of the uh, actors and actresses that was being portrayed in the actual film, like, I can pick out some, but I couldn't really pick out some other ones, but I recognize some of their voices. Uh, Mocha, what about you? I thought that the voice that character, the characters that were voiced, all their voice actors were just inspired choices. They were all fantastic. Um, I agree with what, everything with you guys, what you guys just said in terms of the American voice actors. But one thing that I wanted to bring light to that I really appreciated was the fact that each of the Japanese characters were voiced by Japanese actors and actresses. Um, you know, we'll get into it a lot a little bit later. But there's a lot of talk. There was a lot of you know, kind of like knee-jerk, reflexive talk about, oh, you know, Wes Anderson is a white man and this movie has to do with Japan, so is this cultural appropriation? Is this bad? And just one of the defining features of actual cultural appropriation is utilizing um, characters of a particular ethnicity and then having them voiced or played by people that are absolutely not of that ethnicity. Um, And you can't fault Wes Anderson in that situation for his casting because it was spot on. Every single Japanese character was a Japanese actor. Yeah, I thought that was kind of fun here. And even kind of get into that one, like we can transition of talking about like the depiction of like Japanese culture and like the use of translation. I thought I was kind of nervous because I didn't. I mean, obviously going into this movie, I didn't know what it was about, but I liked that they set up a lot of different. They, they set the world up. They set this. Um, not the stakes, but they set up the parameters of what we're going to be doing, and the fact that people, like, the actual characters are going to speak Japanese, and we're just going to be listening to, like, a translator. I thought that was very fun. I think if you definitely hear a lot of our older sort of episodes, and really a lot of our other episodes, I really hate the fact that there's movies that are not subtitled, um, when they're trying to be authentic as much as possible, and yet they're talking in a really, really difficult um, accent, but they're speaking English, and it's kind of like, mm, why are they doing that? Um, but at least any time that people were speaking Japanese, either there was no subtitle, there was either no subtitles about it, or there was always like some sort of translator, or you get some of it, but not all of it. And I think you also saw a good uh, way of doing that, like a really sort of positive and uh, impactful way of Coco. I think that also did it really well because there were sometimes they were. Um, showing subtitles and sometimes you were showing like what you were what they were saying in Spanish and other times they didn't even give you subtitles at all but you can at least pick up what they were kind of coming from um, from like the context of what was happening so I, I thought that was actually kind of fun uh, but I'll toss it over to uh, Abbott and uh, talk to you guys about like what about the, the Japanese culture and about the use of translation um, in this movie yeah I think um, you know going into it it was again uh, the point that I made earlier uh, it is sort of this uh, future setting in this weird almost alternate universe where uh, cats roll dogs drool sort of thing and um, while they do have a, a massive amount of um, uh, Japanese references and Japanese culture throughout the film I feel like it is it is very respectful, but it's also sort of um, Wes Anderson's interpretation of like how he wanted to portray that. He didn't want it to just be, oh, these are Japanese people. Oh, they love cats. They hate dogs. He also wanted to be like, oh, well, if they're going to have this like clandestine meeting, of course, the phone call is going to come through at like a sumo wrestling match. But it's not just going to be like in the background. You're going to see it happen like you're you're in it. You're 
kind of thrown into the deep end and you kind of see everything around you and he, the, especially the direction and the animation itself just kind of brings you in. Like, if it was going to be, like, a problem or if it was going to be not handled appropriately or correctly, they wouldn't have bothered to take that much care in it. Um, and I think that was a big part of it. The only thing that kind of threw me off um, was the fact there was the, the the one character who's, like, the white foreign exchange student. I felt like her being tossed in there was a little weird. Um, but otherwise, I think, you know, uh, uh, Kira's character was really great. Um, and then the, the fact that I think you pointed out to me when uh, they meet the one scientist in the bar and her name is Yoko Ono. And I kind of laughed. I was like, that's a weird name to give her. And you looked over and it's like, that was Yoko Ono. And she <laughs> yeah. did the voice. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, so little things like that were great. Um, but Ken yeah, Watanabe it was, was Dr. Watanabe. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Ken Watanabe. Yeah. And so it's, it's great that like, it was this, in my mind, a brilliant matchup of a director like Wes Anderson, who has a very specific aesthetic, and then um, Japanese culture, which also has a very specific aesthetic. And I feel like they met in the middle, and it kind of made this really beautiful picture. Um, and especially doing it in stop motion animation was like perfect. Yeah, but yeah. I, I mean, I think one thing about this was, I mean, about the the way they handled Japanese language, Japanese culture, is that. They set it in a very unrealistic Japan. Like, the city's name is Megasaki. So you know that you're not really going to take an exploration of Japanese culture, and this movie's not going to try to convey this is what we think Japanese people are like. They're having fun. They're definitely telling a story of fiction. Uh, but at the same time, I think they want to bring out those parts of Japan that they find very endearing and very um, interesting to explore as well. So... Having the Japanese actors speak in their native language uh, without subtitles for the most part, I thought was fantastic. Um, and, but also, plus the music, even though they didn't get a Japanese composer, they got the next best thing, which is Alexander Desplat. <laughs> and that dude knows how to score a movie. Yeah, he does. And he did an amazing job on this score. Um, I, it definitely, uh, they... He definitely explores like more Japanese storytelling is probably the biggest cultural takeaway from this, where the movie is kind of structured like a Japanese fable, or if you look back at Kubo and the Two Strings, it is that once upon a time at a land land far away. Uh, they even have title cards to set this up kind of way, and that's what your journey's all about. Yeah, for me there was... I want to make this clear at the onset of the statement. I don't believe that there was anything wrong or offensive about Wes Anderson's usage of Japanese culture in this film, flat out. But. However, <laughs> there is a problematic issue with Wes Anderson's storytelling as a whole across his movies. Problematic, of course, not meaning evil and racist, just meaning that like there's room for improvement. Um, the thing about Wes Anderson is that he seems like he's only capable of telling a meaningful story if that story is about a hyper-privileged um, like white, like white character, um, you see it throughout almost all of his movies, and it kind of and it winds up coming through in Isle of, its, Isle of Dogs in its own unique way. Um, whenever Wes Anderson uses um, any sort of cultural influence, whether it's you know the country of India in Darjeeling Unlimited, um, the various ethnicities represented in Grand Budapest Hotel, or with Japan in this film, he uses them as just props and a backdrop to overlay his aesthetic onto. Um, it's just there to, for him to utilize for nice looking backdrops and just interesting scenes and doesn't really add any kind of substance from those cultures to the films. 
Um, and what's interesting about Isle of Dogs is that you don't necessarily have a white character in the form of Atari, but you do have a hyper-privileged main character, right? He's the ward of a super wealthy and super powerful politician in Japan. Um, and you see the same kind of power dynamics at play that you would in any other story that that highlights you know, the roles of a hyper-privileged like, white person, wherein the Japanese in this film are the uh, reigning ethnicity, and the island of dogs are this, this group of others that are completely shit upon um, otherwise. Um, that being said, again, I don't think that his usage of, of Japan was bad. And honestly, some of the images that he brought out with the actual stop motion were just stunning. With the opening credits, where it's those three Japanese school children in their school gymnasium playing those drums to the uh, to the beat of the opening of that opening song, was just gorgeous. And it was so spot on and so in tune the music. It was just really really remarkable. Um, but it was, you know, it's still weird to see things like, you know, the person who winds up, you know, finding out all the secrets and on, and revealing this giant conspiracy and essentially saving the day or at least paving the way for the day to be saved was the, like the white exchange student who spoke English most of the time. Um, that's not bad, but again, it's just like, it's a uniquely Wes Anderson thing where he has, he seems to have a problem kind of telling stories out where the main characters are outside of that realm. Mm. Um, even so though. It was a gorgeous aesthetic that he did use. And as Brian mentioned in the beginning, um, you know, a lot of the wide, like, quote unquote, wide shots that involved, you know, um, really fine tuned symmetry or a lot of dead on straight faces, um, some like quiet moments where you get a lot of background. It was just really it was just really beautiful and very Wes Anderson in a good way, but also very Wes Anderson in a bad way um, or in an unideal un- way. Yeah. Um, even his choice of naming the main character Atari kind of smacks of his not like a cursory understanding of Japanese culture. Like Atari isn't a Japanese name. It's also not even a Japanese game company. Like there's nothing really Japanese <laughs> oh, about geez, the word Atari. Oh, I called him Akira earlier. Now I feel like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> that's, close, that was closer that's closer to a real <laughs> Japanese name. But yeah, like it's that's one of those things where it's like, come on, Wes. Like, I wish you would do better. But even so, like I do think it was good. And as you guys mentioned earlier, the usage of language in this film, and specifically the choice to not use subtitles, added this whimsical nature to the film that just kind of made the whole thing feel a bit more magical and was great for me because I absolutely love Japanese language. So it was really fun listening to it throughout. Yeah, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I know is <clears throat> one of the things that I was a bit nervous about and it's something that i like but at the same time i can only imagine people getting up and walking out of the film within the first five minutes and i think uh me and abbott i think we leaned over like talked to each other about it of oh this is very wes anderson or this is very like creative and like artsy and whatever sort of like adjective you want to put on it but he really kind of cranked up it a lot with a lot of these characters and he let these actors and actresses kind of live these roles but I, I would say it, it's definitely, if you take, um, you know, Grand Budapest was, like, pretty out there. They had, like, some things out there, but still, it was, like, pretty rooted and it wasn't too bad. Uh, but then if you then take, you know, the Fantastic Mr. Fox and this, it's like, that's, even though it's both, both, both of those are still sort of animated, one's a little bit more grounded to the Fantastic Mr. Fox, and, the, uh, and then this one's a little bit more... A little bit more difficult, you know, more kind of surface level, um, and they end up just getting more, um, 
they didn't really kind of get to the to the, the emotional sort of backing. I think we had mentioned this before uh, to the fact that a story happens, it goes through, we kind of know what happens. He gets found, you know, the torch is passed, and then it kind of sort of ends. Um, but we don't really get anything going from, like, this cat versus dogs, is the battle still going to go, or... Um, really anything else besides kind of the surface level and i'm pretty sure people are probably going to have some probably some issues right it's not it's not i don't think any movie is going to be perfect but these are probably things that i know that uh people who've seen the movies have some issues with so i think it's okay um, i had uh, another quick thing to hit on as you guys were speaking about that regarding the aesthetic and the use of japanese culture something that is kind of interesting is the fact that the two um parallel environments that we're sort of um uh, exposed to are this beautiful Japanese city, Nagasaki or Megasaki, and then uh, a giant trash heap. And it's like, they're both beautiful in their own ways, and they're both really well produced in the way that the scenes are set and the way that um, the environments are put together. But when you think of it that way, it's like, here's this beautiful, like he's trying to almost respect it that way. It's like, okay, well, this other place we're looking at is total garbage. Like, this is just refuse. It's all grays and earth tones and gross. Meanwhile, here's Japan. Big, bright, beautiful, vibrant, lights on, electric, running neon, like, all this stuff. And I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. Cool. Uh, so I know there's a bunch of other stuff that we want to talk about. Um, so I'll, I'll, let's go ahead and toss it up and says, you know, what other things that we do want to talk about before we kind of close off the show? Let's toss it over to uh, Brylan. Yeah. Brylan, what's some other stuff? Let's let's unpack it. Yeah. So, uh, like I was saying earlier, like this is probably my least favorite Wes Anderson film. One of the reasons why I don't like it that much is the way they use violence and gore in this movie. He definitely takes it to a more cartoony level than he has in um, his previous films. A lot of times in his previous films, he uses the violence to break the silliness and to remind people that, hey, there's some serious stakes here. Um, if we look at like Royal Tenenbaums, Richie goes into the bathroom and slits his wrists. Um, yeah, it's not played for laughs at all. It's just like a really serious moment that like, oh shit, what happened to this guy? Or um, if we look at... Um, if we look at uh, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, like when someone's shocked by lightning, it's like, oh, is he going to live or die or is he dead or not? It's it's not um, it's not a time for laughs. And I think they use the violence and the gore just way too s silly in this movie, uh, especially with Atari's like gyrocopter rotor stuck in his head the whole time where they pull it out and he passes out and there's blood pulling out of his head and they put it back in and a blood still squirts out and he's back walking around uh or um or when uh at the end when they're giving him a kidney transplant uh i think his kidneys are the least <laughs> to worry about when he's got this big pole sticking out of his head as well and there's just blood everywhere it's really crazy and the way they just murder Dr. Watanabe and it's just like straight up, hey, uh, I'm the mayor of Megasaki City and I'm just going to murder you. And I think that was probably the most serious act of violence in the movie. But a lot of times it's just played for jokes, like the ear getting cut off. And I was like, you know what? We need to have some stakes in this movie. And I wasn't feeling any stakes. They were just like, hey, let's have a 
it have a silly adventure on this trash island. I mean, but I would even say that, you know, arguably it could be a little bit different approach that he's trying to do for these movies because in all his other films, like that, the death was a, a like death or sort of like that's a realistic sort of um, reminder of like these things are happening. Whereas sometimes, right, there's things you just can't do about it. So in, in the face of death, you may have to laugh and you still have to get kind of comfortable with it. Um, I like the fact that, again, I guess for me, this is like one of the big things that I thoroughly enjoyed about the movie was the fact that they saw death, but it wasn't something that completely derails a person's sort of mental uh, capability, right? It didn't derail everything. It was like, oh, this is just another thing that we have to deal with. Uh, or the violence is kind of like another thing that we necessarily have to deal with in this type of movie that's a, that's animated. So that's why, I, at least for me, I thought it was kind of funny of... Um, you know, the fact that the doctor is using a book to find out how to do the surgery, which I thought was hilarious, of, like, where to cut and, like, how to move the kidney over from uh, the uncle to Atari. And I thought, even to the fact that I'm glad they, uh, one of the, I can't remember which dog had mentioned it, but they were like, I'm not sure about this kid's mental, like, capacity, like, his mental ability. And, he, and they, they did talk about kind of mental health, and they did talk about some issues like that, too. Uh, and so they kind of went into it a little bit, and I think we talked about it, right, of pretty superficial and, like, pretty surface level. They didn't really kind of get too much under it, but I don't think he was trying to do that. It's, like, more kind of tossing everything out there. Uh, the thing about the doctor is I was looking more of that was a suicide because um, he kind of, he knew that, that they were going to necessarily kind of poison him, so that's why he only, like, licked it a little bit. And that was it, instead of eating it entirely and leaving that for its own. Uh, but I think it's also up open for interpretation. Uh, but I think they intended to murder him, but he was kind of like, if this didn't happen, then not. Um, so I looked at that as being a bit of a suicide on his part, which is a bit more of a sacrifice of, if that didn't happen, then uh, the foreign exchange student didn't like rise up and like find all this information out. Um, so that's how I kind of at least perceived that. But, you know, it could be open for anything. Yeah, and it's, it, I mean, the big thing is I walked away feeling like they used the violence to make fun of that moment rather than for you to kind of feel a little bit more that deeper level uh, layer of those characters mm -hmm. and to have that kind of compassion to it. I can definitely see that too, and I, can, I, I kind of agree with that one. Uh, I think I, I looked at it and I liked it a bit more for laughs of lightening the, mute, lightening the mood of like watching uh, animated sort of violence, which is very different, but at the same time, it still could be funny in certain elements. Uh, Mocha? Yeah, I guess two things that come to mind that I haven't been touched on yet. Um, one for me, which is which is a little weird for me to come across, but you know, we talked a little bit about emotion in this film and the depth of characters, and... In this film, there are there's this moment where the where they're talking to I can't remember the name of the character, but he was the dog that was voiced by Harvey Keitel, the leader of the pack that were said to be cannibals. Um, and they're doing a flashback where Atari's dog um, Spot meets him for the first time. And he mentions that he's a cannibal, and the guy, uh, the dog, gets worked up and he starts saying like, "We we had to eat him. Like we didn't want to. He was our our leader." But it, like he had died already, and we, like we we were starving, and the camera just pauses on that dog's face, and his eyes well with tear as he's tears as he's talking about it, 
And I was like, I was like, damn, like from an emotional standpoint, like that hit me. I'm like, I wasn't expecting to see this stop motion character have these like really realistic looking flowing tears just like well up in his eyes. And they weren't like, it wasn't an outpouring of actual tears. It was just, you could see the emotion was built up. And I was like, man, that was a really cool, um, like emotional beat. But then they used that exact same, like framed, like close up on the face, like dog tears welling up in eyes, like seven more times about the film. Yeah. And that was a little bit annoying for me just because it was like this, um, dim- diminishing emotional returns throughout where every time they used it, it was a scene that could have been emotionally impactful, but because they used the exact same technique and approach and look every time, it became more and more boring and uninteresting to me. Um, and I think that's a flaw of Wes Anderson's aesthetic. He loves doing close-up shots of people's faces dead on. Um, it's part of his style. But when you add the element of the repeated emotional, um, you know, emotion yanker tearjerker whatever the phrase would be um heartstring puller <laughs> anyway when you use that it over and over <laughs> it, it loses its, its it loses its edge and it kind of just like bored me when it got late uh, later what was used later on in the film in moments that i shouldn't have been bored during um aside from that also there was one thing in this film from a story perspective that i really would have liked to see more of they did a pretty decent job of world building about halfway through this film where they talk about how there's a secret society of yakuza who worship cats and who have cat over like cat overlords that they want to establish as the rulers and have all dogs moved off onto this island and that's a really interesting um plot point but at no point do they ever go into the relationship of human of like humans to cats um dogs can speak in this film owls can communicate with those dogs but cats, despite being like the driving force of all these dogs being gen- being thrown into genocide, never talk, never have a role. There's never a reason for them. We're just told, oh, the yakuza like cats, and so they're genociding all the dogs. Like it, like that movie would have made more sense had they not mentioned the obsession with cats and just said, well, they want to get rid of the dogs. Let be that SMA. That would have been more just acceptable for me than saying, oh, cats are, it's because of cats, but then never mentioning or showing any interesting cats or having cats talk or having anything to do with it whatsoever. Um, I just felt like that was a miss um, in terms of the story. Um, and I would have liked to see that. I would have liked to see why those cats were such assholes. I mean, I was ho- I'm was. i glad they didn't really kind of delve into like a cats and dogs, which by the way, if you guys haven't seen Cats and Dogs, it's a terrible movie, so don't watch it. I love that movie. You shut uh, your mouth. I knew you would say, I knew you were going to say that. Uh, this is why I hate you. Uh, but I'm glad they didn't tell a story of it's like cats and dogs, right? They at least brought a bit more of um, lore, some some story behind it, some Jap- Japanese traditions, and they kind of just meld everything together. But it's still a bit of a joke going back to that haiku, right? And <clears throat> I'm I'm glad that he talked about it a little bit different. But I think it would have been cool to see like like we saw at the end, like there was a bunch of cats that potentially come out of nowhere or it came out of the robot dogs or I wasn't quite entirely sure and um I thought for sure at one point the tall like butler was going to be like a, a series of like six or seven cats that was controlling the human or something I, I mean you never know or six cats and a man that would have made a lot of sense for why he freaked out at the at right. the um at the politician yeah. at the end well, but it, you see I, I agree with you like we don't need more movies that are about cats and dog tropes but they made it a movie about cats and dogs yeah. he, they were very clear we're yeah. only doing this because the yakuza love cats yeah. and so we're getting rid of dogs but then they didn't follow through on that. Well, even to the that point of too like, easy. yeah. Well, even to the point I agree, where the, but they the shouldn't uncle, have mentioned it then. <laughs> like the uncle, right? It's he has a huge cat tattoo, and that he he turns way too easily. I felt like, and then gives up his kidney, and 
goes to jail, and he was okay with that. Uh, oh, but I love that also it's like a dark humor moment of, you know, uh, Atari with his uh, new counsels, like, oh, you know, what should we do? And one of the girls go, I think she sentenced her to death. Ooh, that's a little bit much. Maybe we just get, go to community service or something. All right, maybe this is <laughs> like, oh. Uh, that's you know, it's part of the, the and I think that was like one of the last lines of the movie so I thought that was kind of fun close to last lines but um, yeah I thought that was kind of just fun and just kind of talk about that too uh, Abbott? Yeah I think um, a lot of what you guys said kind of rolled together um, especially with the story and one thing I'm sort of putting together is that uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox was based on a book um, this one was not um, so he kind of had to do a lot of work to kind of build his own world, build his own story. And um, one thing that we remarked on when we left the theater, Warren, was that Jason Schwartzman was mysteriously missing from this film. But as I was doing some research, he apparently worked very heavily on the screenplay. So that was his involvement in this movie, um, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but uh, also the fact that he does have to kind of toe the line. He didn't cater to kids. So that's probably why they didn't include like the definite 100% cats versus dog easy easy equation there um but he does do this great job of pulling off things like a like an edward gory or like a roll doll where he incorporates these classic um children's book tropes like parents aren't present you know they're gone and then the kids um while they're dealing with these super heavy issues they're not necessarily treated like kids they're sort of treated like adults like their the stakes are just as high for them as they would be for adults and that's what kind of makes it great so i would let my kids watch this movie I don't have any kids that I know about, but if I did, I would take them to see this movie. Um, but yeah, no, I think um, I really liked it. Um, I think more parents should let their kids watch this movie because I think kids nowadays are, are all babies. All kids are babies and all babies need to grow up. <laughs> I agree. All kids born before 2015 are babies. <laughs> Jason point. I was at Starbucks the other day, and this guy behind me told the barista, uh, "You got to watch out for those kids outside. They're playing with lighters." It's like, what does a barista care about that? Yeah, yeah, it's weird. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, I definitely do agree with. Uh, I agree. Let's agree to disagree again here, <clears throat> Abbott. Um, I. I would definitely bring like my children to watch this movie, uh, and I'll bring them to watch a lot of movies. But at the same time, like you can have like those conversations about it. But it's nice to see like different depictions and different sort of representations of like death, where some people like laugh at it, some people like have more serious approach to it. Like it's not something that's like one thing, or it's not black and white, right? Everything's going to be in that gray area, and sometimes you have like a death, like the Watanabe's character that was very much sad and like oof. Like, we have that. Then we have, you know, the other deaths that's in the character that talks about, like, uh, I don't think anybody else died in this movie. Well, even, you're talking about, like, other characters. Other, should have been dead. Yeah, should have been, right? <laughs> but then they also kind of played it for, they, they played it for laughs. Yeah, they, and it, and it played it for, like, this more kind of comedic approach. And, um, you know, with that sadness comes, like, that humor right there. If that sometimes people have that as a defensive mechanism and this movie really does that at least kind of depicts this a little bit uh really well other strange thing uh, even talking about that I, I, uh, I was in a movie theater and i saw the quiet place and somebody brought a seven-year-old to that <laughs> jesus so that's weird i don't know if i want to bring my dark. child to that movie but especially if you've seen that movie there's a fear boner out for it so check it out 
that movie is fucked up. So it's really good though. It's really <laughs> it, good. It is really good. But I would not bring my child. I wouldn't bring my seven year old to watch that movie. So. Well, you're talking to a guy. I would take my kid to go see Cannibal Holocaust if they like did like a like a play of it on seventy millimeter. You know, and like one of those old like you said, the Coolidge Corner. They'd probably show it on like old film. I would take you know a four year old to see that movie. <laughs> a four year old? Come on, you're crazy. Who gave me a four year old? That's what you should be asking. Where did I get this four year old? Do I know this four year old? It's your four year old. Okay. As someone who fully intends to show his children Requiem for a Dream on their 10th birthdays, I completely <laughs> believe that every movie is a children's movie as long as they get something out of it. Yeah, it's fair. That's but... why you shouldn't do drugs, kids. <laughs> also, Warren, I just want to make a note. Your description of Dr. Watanabe's death taken out of context is amazing. You said he licks it and then he put it in his, he didn't put it in his mouth, but he still died. You didn't say what it was. Oh. <laughs> My bad. Uh, so in the so thanks for calling. Thanks for calling me out. Uh, in the movie, they there was an amazing sequence. Actually, now thank you for bringing this up because I didn't want to mention this in my um, all other things. But there was a sequence. I'll see if I can link up to the videos in uh, YouTube that talks about how people like there was somebody who uses like regular things and was like making food. And I felt like the stop motion of them making the, um, the, uh, what's the box called? It was like the sushi box? box? The bento bento box, yeah. And them making the bento box, that was by far one of my favorite parts of the movie because it was just the hands and them just kind of creating the food. And then them putting on the gloves and putting the poison that was on that piece of sashimi, I believe it was, or sushi. Uh, and so when Watanabe gets it, he eats all the other food in the bento box and leaves this one for last. And you can tell because it's a different colored sort of um, wasabi. And it was poison wasabi, I think they called it, <laughs> that he like put on the actual uh, sushi. And he sees it, he picks it up, he kind of takes a little dab lick of it. And then we see him rush to the hospital. You see his body, they take off his shades that he had on the entire time. And his eyes are like bloodshot and like popped out and arm moss and like... He, he he was um, considered dead after that. So that happens every time I eat sushi, though. Yeah, I mean sushi with wasabi. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's normal. So I'm excited. I mean, I'm glad uh, we all kind of liked or didn't quite like the movie, but we have a lot of kind of thoughts about the movie. But let's go into some conclusions. Let's talk about you know, should would you recommend this movie? Would you not recommend this movie? If you hated the movie, if you love this movie, or another big thing of. Watch this movie, but you may have to watch X and B first. So, Rylan? Uh, yeah, uh, so I would say even though I was kind of disappointed in how this movie turned out, it's still an enjoyable film to watch. It's still beautiful in its animation. Um, even though it's Wes Anderson's worst film, it's still better than 90% of movies that are made out there right now. Um, if there's any, like, primer, uh, I would watch... Uh, watch Fantastic Mr. Fox along with this just to see two sides of Wes Anderson's like animation talents. Yeah. Uh, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is far superior to this, uh, but they make a good twofer. Yeah, that's a good call out because I would definitely say kind of the same thing of, I think this is one of his only other animated films. Those are um, his two animated films. But then I would also look at, you know, Kubo and other stop animation um, movies, uh, at least for me, because that I think you'll also just get a just an appreciation of this art style. Um, and it takes a hell of a lot of work. Uh, Mocha? Yeah, I would say that similarly to Brylan, this film 
while I don't think it's one of Wes Anderson's best films, Wes Anderson hasn't yet to make a bad film. So it's definitely worth seeing. Also, please, for the love of God, see this movie, period, just because good animation needs support when it comes to the, to the box office. Well-animated films, unless they're Disney or Pixar, rarely um, like do big numbers in box office. And we need directors like this who are stepping outside of the box that aren't just part of the Disney umbrella, um, You know, providing us with really cool animation. It takes a lot of work to put this together, and the people who did that deserve every um, ticket that they can get. So we sh- people should definitely go see this film. Well, absolutely, because I know that one of the uh, the biggest films from the Kubo we're talking about barely got any money and didn't make, make their money back, and that was one of the best films of the year. So definitely go check yeah. that out. Abbott? It was my and Blewett's best film of the year for Down on Front Podcast one year. Was it mine, too? It was a No, nah, it was just me and Blewett. Call me out. Right. Abbott? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely um, echo your guys' uh, statements. The animation is top-notch. Uh, I really hope it gets a nod um, for the 2018 Oscars. Um, it's just a shame that it's coming out the same year as Incredibles 2. Um, but it's it's true. Like Nowadays, more people expect, you know, they even just hear animation, they expect CG, they expect Pixar. They're like, you could say animation and people are just like, oh, you mean Pixar? It's like, no. There's other animations out there, and this is a great example of it, and people should go out and see it. I think it's also great. Um, I found out recently there's a, a few theaters uh, around the country that are doing Bring Your Dog showings, which Aww. is kind of cool. Aww. I don't know like, what a dog in a movie theater would like want, like that many dogs running around Fucking a movie theater. Terrible. Like, it's going to be weird, but that would be an awesome experience. Um, there is no way say, all of those showings end without piss on the ground. There's yes, no way. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Or, like, are the, are the concession stands going to. Like carry doggy kibble or some that's shit. Like, like that's like having to bring your untamed large bird to see Rio. <laughs> like, I mean, really, gonna what's, badly. what's the difference between people bringing their dogs to the theaters and people bringing babies into theaters? Bring your brella. Dogs are cuter. <laughs> yes, dogs are cuter. <laughs> Can I bring my cat to the dog viewing? <laughs> no, but um. Yeah, no, all in all, go see the movie. Uh, I would say if you see it and dig it, or if you want to see other sad, um, intense, uh, interesting dog movies, uh, I would liken this, not directly, but check out a movie called White God. Um, It's an interesting film. I think it's still on Netflix, but it's basically about a a girl who gets her dog taken away. Um, But then the dog, it's sort of told from, like, her perspective and then the dog's perspective, and the dog just goes through hell to get back to her. but, But through this hell, there's, like... He gets involved in dog fights, and then there's, like, a mass dog uprising, and it gets really, like, scary at one point. There's hundreds of dogs, but the coolest thing about that movie, not only is it live action, and there's, like, hundreds of, like, trained dogs on the set towards the end of the movie, but at the end of the movie, when it wrapped, they made sure that all of those dogs got adopted, which was really cool. How are they trained and not adopted? I don't know. Things are different in <laughs> Europe. It's in a different language. I can't remember what Do country. Do you mean hundreds from, of wild I think dogs? On I think it's Swedish. It might be Swedish. Yeah. 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 Because it's in a. It's in a. It's also in a different language, but they do have subtitles in that movie. That's okay. Uh, so right now, Isle of Dogs is sitting on twelve million dollars, which is pretty good. I mean, it, I mean that's what I'm sitting on. Hey, uh, it is pretty good. I'm right for what it what it uh, kind of made. I have to look up the numbers of what's the budget, what it was kind of made for. Uh, but yeah, definitely kind of echoing off. Definitely go check out other works. Definitely go check out more of Wes Anderson films because I know I will be. Whoops. 
uh, and definitely go look and watch the movie. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox and uh, Isle of Dogs are two very, very different movies and very different casts. But I think you can definitely have an appreciation for both of these films. Like, one talks about something more surface level, the other one talks about kind of survival and, like, kind of building a family and sacrifices and things that has to happen. Um, so I think you'll get, like, the majority of, like, a West Anderson approach. And then I, I wouldn't say... Would you guys kind of say, like, if you had one of these movies, the introduction to West Anderson, which one would you uh, prefer? Or which one would you say, hey... West Anderson film, I would say mine's will be Fantastic Mr. Fox just to get the quirkiness of the language and the dialogue. Um, but what about you guys? Um, if I was going to expose someone to Wes Anderson for the first time, I would probably ease them in with uh, Royal Tannenbaums and Bottle Rocket. I think you get like a good helping of Wes Anderson through those two movies where it you don't really have to kind of like like uh, pay attention a little bit more like Royal Tannenbaums is like his most accessible movie I would say mm -hmm. and then Bottle Rocket is just like it's his first film where it's all about just how the characters are acted and it's a really good uh, crash course on saying when you have a little budget how much acting can take a story Um, I would say, uh, at least in my experience, when I started watching these movies in college, the first one I saw was uh, Life Aquatic. That's probably why it's my favorite, but it's also quirky enough that you guys know that I love weird movies. So if I bring someone in and they watch that and they also like that movie, I'm probably going to like that person. So it's a two birds, one stone kind of thing. If you don't like it, just get out of my apartment. I don't even like that movie. Interesting. Get out of my apartment. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would say for a first Wes Anderson film to introduce somebody into, I would throw them into the deep end and just say start with Bottle Rocket. Um, it's his first film. It's also a very slow-paced film, and I feel like it can be very boring for some people um, if they don't know what to expect. However, I do think that if you can get through a much more slower-paced uh, version of Wes Anderson's quirkiness, then you will absolutely love that much more. The more intense movies that he's put out like Fantastic Mr. Fox or Moonrise Kingdom. Um, so definitely I would start off with, with Bottle Rocket. Um, I also want to add on to what you were saying earlier, Warren, about this movie's um, budget. So for Isle of Dogs, we don't have an actual production budget yet that hasn't been released. However, as you mentioned, it's currently sitting at $12 million and made $1.6 in its opening weekend. To... to um, to kind of highlight that with something similar, Fantastic Mr. Fox had a pr production budget of $40 million and for its worldwide total made $46 million and mm. only $265,000 on its opening weekend. Damn. So at the very least, Isle of Dogs ha is, has a much better head start than Fantastic Mr. Fox did. But if Fantastic Mr. Fox had a budget of $40 million, I I imagine this movie had to be at least twice that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, I can... I, I mean... Unless they did something crazy, but I wouldn't imagine. Maybe they kickstarted it. it. Could, could be. I doubt, but could be. Sure. I mean, the their, even their first release, their opening re release was very, very limited. Because I think they actually released this movie two weeks ago. Um, yeah, two, maybe three weeks ago. That was limited, and it was only in, like, there was nowhere playing in Boston. Or maybe, like, one week. Well, a couple theaters playing in Boston. Now it's getting more and more traction. It was good. So we 
are the Down to Front Podcast, and I would love to know where we can find more of these peeps' works here. Bradley, where can you find more of your work? Uh, you can find me sniffing butts on Twitter at Brylin, B-R-I-L-U-N-D. Um, I also put many movie reviews up on Instagram at I am Bryland. And, uh, when I'm not in California enjoying the rays and surfing like a, uh, a dude bro, you can find me, uh, on the games cast, twitch.tv slash downer from podcast, playing some video games. They just announced uh, the Mega Man X Legacy Collection coming out July 24th. I am so excited for it. I can't wait. Nice. They also have a Mega Man sort of um, update that's happening to Monster Monster Hunter. So, um, yeah. My life is is over. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Mocha, where can you find more of your work? You can find me on Twitter, modeling dog fur jockstraps at Mocha Mike Li. Um, that's Mocha Mike Li, as the Lord intended. Unfortunately, you cannot find me at Mocha Mike. Um, the current holder of Mocha Mike recently wandered into his local dump in search of his beloved pet ferret and has yet to be seen. Um, so for the time being, it's Mocha Mike Li. You can also find me on Instagram, where I post my photography work at Mocha Mike. Um, take a look at that. I will have some images from my trip to Denmark rather soon coming up. And finally, you can see some of my written work at Medium, medium.com slash at Mocha Mike. There I do some long-form reviews of the stuff we talk about here on the podcast. Currently, the most recent stuff that's up there is um, some information regarding Thanos and some, info, and some info leading up to Avengers Infinity War. But I hope to have a new post up soon about Pacific Rim Uprising and why it's a really terrible movie, regardless of what Brian and Warren think. You bro, uh, that's a great movie. Thank you, China, for banking three hundred and fifty million dollars into that movie. That's probably like two hundred million. Sorry, John Boyega. Uh, I mean, we're not gonna. We're, you're just triggering me. We're not gonna get into that. Uh, Abbott, where can you find more of your work? Uh, well, you can find me skulking around the streets of Boston wearing a dog furry suit. I like to make friends and give out free hugs, but. On the internet, you can find me all over the place uh, as the Abs Man. Uh, we did have a recent Fear Boner for A Quiet Place come out. Give it a listen. Um, I also recently created a new email for the Fear Boners, so if you want to send me anything weird, anything strange, or nice dog pictures as a change of pace, you can always do that. And that is fearbonersdifp at gmail.com. And thanks so much. And you can find more of our work. So we are literally everywhere. Uh, we do want to highlight our website, so downinfrontpodcast.com, where you can find a bunch of our video teaser episodes. We have podcast information. We have our music. And the music's from Michael Blewett, who we're missing for us right now. We have the game cast and just about every information that's going to be on there. That's going to be downinfrontpodcast.com. Check us out on Twitter. It's underscore D-I-F-P, as well as on Facebook. We're on facebook.com slash downinfrontpodcast. We have our sub... Oh, we have a Reddit. We have an email. Like, literally anywhere and everywhere you can find us is going to be downinfrontpodcast.com. And if you do want to help us out, if you have a couple of change just rattling in the pockets, definitely go check us out. Uh, definitely support us. Become a patron. Patreon.com slash downinfrontpodcast. Anything and everything helps and this matters. And if even for the kind of the lowest tier that we have, you can definitely join our Discord channel that we have set up for it. So just kind of hang out with us. We talk about the next shows. We talk about the next reviews. And there's even a spoiler section that I am not a part of because spoilers are awful. So definitely check this out. Patreon.com slash downinfrontpodcast. And with that, throw us a bone.
Ooh, I like that. <laughs> we will say goodnight, go watch the movie, grab a drink, and join the pod. See you later. Adios. <laughs> Sayonara. Ow. Ow, ow, ow. Are we doing this barking thing or...